It's me, Sophia. Welcome to another episode of the Sustainable Spirit Podcast. I'm so happy to see you here, whether you're new or whether you've been listening to the podcast before. So today's episode is really special because I get to talk to the visionary founder and leader of the Earthsea Project, which is an inspiring initiative focused on archiving the rich tapestry of Black family histories and stories. Jashana, through her incredible work, has created a space where the past and present converge, offering us a roadmap to understanding our roots and the strength they provide. Her project, which is named after the concept of Earth Seed from Octavia Butler's renowned science fiction, extends beyond just a collection of narratives. It's a profound journey into the essence of being and belonging. In our conversation, we delve into the realms of spiritual healing, a core aspect of Jashana's mission and a vital component of the Earthsea Project. We also discuss the transformative power of connecting with our ancestors, not just in knowing who they were, but also in understanding their dreams, their struggles, and the legacies they've left for us to carry forward. Now, let me invite you to join us on this enlightening discussion about healing, ancestry, and taking ownership over our stories. Let's welcome Jashana Wally. I'm Sophia, your host, and this is the Sustainable Spirit Podcast, where we explore how spirituality and ancient wisdom can inspire us to build a more socially and environmentally sustainable world. Now, I invite you to awaken your curiosity and open your heart as you join me on this journey of growth and understanding. Thank you for thank you for joining me on my podcast. I'm really excited for a conversation because I think like one of the things that I really like about your work and your Earthsea project is that it's all about intersections and it's like the intersections between identity, different identities that uh, people share and different disciplines. And I personally, I felt like that was really cool. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here and to talk more about it. So just to start out with, I wanted to ask you about your Earthsea project. It's an Afrofuturist digital humanities research project that's, like I said, at the intersection of uh, Black media studies, digital media, science fiction studies. And I found it really interesting that it was inspired by like the philosophy of Octavia E. Butler and her science fiction work. Could you say more about how she influenced your work and inspired what you're doing with the project now? Yeah, so Octavia Butler was a phenomenal Black feminist writer of her time. Um, And I was first introduced to her work through the Parable series. So it's a two-part series that follows um, this main character, Lauren, who um, it's a post-apocalyptic world. So literally communities have created these borders of neighborhoods and walls, like literal walls around themselves um, to keep out danger, um, to keep out disease. There's a virus going around that turns people into almost like zombie type beings, like flesh eating beings. Mm -hmm. There's a dictator in power um, whose slogan I think is like, essentially like, you know, we want to go back to a a time very close to um, Trump's slogan in the U.S., um, make America great again. It was just so many parallels to what was happening in this apocalyptic world that Octavia Butler wrote, I want to say in the 90s. So way before, you know, this moment that I'm reading it, you know, even the way that people are responding to these dangers, like she's living in a neighborhood, which a common uh, practice is to build these high walls around us, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this idea that creating these physical borders between our community and the other is going to, quote unquote, keep us safe. And she begins to get these downloads. She never really names where these downloads come from, but the way that she receives them. It's very prophetic. It's very, I I read it as if she was hearing messages from 
her ancestors. Someone else might read it as if she was hearing messages from spirit. She might say that she was hearing messages from extra, you know, aliens because her ultimate goal and the ultimate message was essentially we need to reach for the stars, but not in this, you know, metaphoric way, but in a very literal way. Like Mm -hmm. our goal is to leave this planet um, because this planet is done and we need to go to the stars. So she receives these messages that has all these kind of like coded ways of being, you know, um, one of the messages is God is change. And she starts to write them down and she calls them the earth seed verses. Mm-hmm. So they become her guiding post for how she is going to free herself and also the desire to free her family. Mm -hmm. And she's telling her family, look, this community is going to crumble. It's not going to keep, we're not going to be safe here anymore. We're going to have to leave. It's time for us to start preparing to leave. We need to start saving seeds. We need to start gathering weapons. We need to start training ourselves on how to use these weapons. And her family and her father is actually a pastor. He's just like, no, you need to just have faith in you know, our our way of living, we've been doing this for so long, we've survived so much, you know, just trust the leadership. And she's like, okay. So she starts to prepare herself in silence and in isolation. And she's doing so with the guidance of these Ursi verses that she's receiving. And then eventually what she says is going to happen happens. The quote unquote monsters that they were trying to keep out came into the neighborhood. Um, The walls were blown up. Um, The disease found its way into the neighborhood. Um, And the community was essentially like attacked and her family didn't survive. So she now is on this basically like a pilgrimage from where she's staying to the other side of the country on foot, um, in the midst of all of the danger that's happening and chaos that's happening in the world. And the only thing that's really keeping her with no clear destination, right? Because her ultimate destination is get to the stars, but she doesn't really know how she's going to do that. So right now she's focused on where can I go for safety? Where can I go for resources? Where can I go for support? So she just starts walking West because she hears that there are like safe hubs in the West. So I was deeply moved by one, the parallels of this world that Octavia Butler was able to create almost as if she herself is prophetic, right? Like as if she herself saw that we were going to be living in Um, At that time, the era of the Trump presidency, the era of um, politicians deciding to build these walls to, quote unquote, keep us safe, the era of travel bans against, at that time, Muslim, Muslim folks and folks coming from Muslim countries. It was just staunch to me that I was reading this at a time where I I myself was looking at what felt like the world crumbling, what people call the empire collapsing, and what it felt like to be, to feel deeply unsafe in this particular world that I'm living, but not really knowing what to do with that. Where do I go? So she kind of inspired this idea that one, our ancestors, because I'm reading this as if she's getting these messages from her ancestors. And then Octavia Butler at this time is an ancestor, right? That our ancestors have so much knowledge, so a wealth of magic, a wealth of guidance to provide that we need to take heed to. If we're not only going to survive this world, but really build a new world. So that kind of opened up this relationship that I was building with my ancestors in a more practical way. It's the first time I built an altar for my ancestors. 
it's the first time that I actually started to have conversations and prayers with the expectation to actually listen and receive messages. And from there, I realized that as a Black person in America whose ancestors are descendants of enslavement, there are a lot of barriers to me actually knowing even their names. And I started to feel discouraged <laughs> and I started to feel lonely in that journey. Fast forward a couple of years from that point, COVID-19 happens and it is starting to, we're watching it disproportionately impact our elders, those who are most vulnerable. Elders who are part of black and brown families are disproportionately impacted. And I became, I began to feel a sense of urgency. Like if they leave with their wealth of knowledge, if my grandmother leaves before I'm able to ask her about her mother or ask her about her grandmother, how am I going to get that information? So it was a kind of series of things that kind of just happened over time that one, emphasize the urgency to have, when I think about an intergenerational coalition building or relationship, I'm thinking about not just the elders and the young people, but also the ancestors who have come before. And to have a real conversation about who, who are we? What has been our history of resilience? You know, I often say our grandparents are uniquely situated to have been born into a world where reproductive justice rights didn't exist. See a movement that gave us those rights, fought for those rights, defined what those rights should mean and are now also living in a world as they're watching those rights and that same work that they've done be rolled back. To me, that's a plethora of knowledge. How did you do it? How did you survive? What insight do you have to help us pick up the mantle? But also, what did you learn that we need to do differently? That's kind of where Earthseed was birthed. It was birthed out of this urgency to just be really prepared for the collapse of society as we know it, to find tools of liberation and healing in our own past instead of looking for, you know, I call them the talented few. We just celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. And I love that. I love that we can celebrate him and his work. And I also want to be able to celebrate the work of our grandparents, right, of our ancestors, so that we can acknowledge that we ourselves, every last one of us, has a story of survival and resistance. And if we are really going to build new worlds instead of recreating the old ones, I think it's important for us to sit in that knowing and do some research from that place. Mm -hmm. And the art aspect came from the fact that, you know, Octavia Butler was an artist. She's an Afrofuturist. Afrofuturism to me is the core of it. It's a tool of artists. It acknowledges art as this one healing mechanism. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about Earthseed is that we're not just in the archives doing research. We're also writing poetry. We're also creating collages. We're taking what we're learning and we are alchemizing it into something that is nourishing to our souls. Because this work is not easy. It can be very traumatic. It can be very isolating. Um, so that's why I'm very clear about it being a community project, something that we do together. And this idea that we're constantly creating, even in the world where you're seeing them banning books. We're living in a time where books are being banned. We're living in a time where Afri um, Africana studies is under attack. Critical race theory is under attack. Drag bars are under attack, like places where culture is studied, experienced, um, and queer, and queer in a sense of like 
against the norm, not hege hegemonic, those places are systemically under attack. And they have historically been under attack, right? So this project is really about acknowledging that whatever is happening in the world, what we do have is a connection to source, a connection to our ancestors and a connection to each other. And from that place, from that knowing and that knowledge, we can create the worlds that we desire to see. Yeah, one thing that really, uh, I guess, like strikes me about what you're saying is this contrast between knowing your knowing your history in order to look into the future and to prepare for the future. And I think that a lot of times that's kind of neglected. So it's really cool that you're working on that. But I think another thing that you said that really striked me was you said, I think it was a it might have been a quote from someone else. You said God is change. I thought that was that was really interesting. Could you elaborate on what that means? Yes. Yeah, so that is one of the kind of underlying parables, I guess, of the parable series. So one of the quotes from Octavia Butler's um, work that um, the main character receives is God is change. And it becomes almost like a mantra, uh, a value, a way of being that the main character takes on to help. Ex it, I think she was using it as a way or her interpretation of it was to make sense of the chaos around her, right? To make sense of the fact that, yes, our family survived a couple of generations living within these walls. But what I'm telling you is God has changed. And God is telling me that the safety that you once relied on is no longer safe. The yeah. stability that you once relied on is no longer going to be stable. So how are you going to respond when that foundation crumbles. Mm -hmm. And for me, my interpretation from that is being able, if you can accept that change is divine, you can have faith that you can survive whatever that change brings up. Yeah, that's really, I kind of, I think also, I, I guess in my own experience, I've experienced this sense of comfort as well and kind of security in knowing your past, even not even going like that many generations back, just knowing the kinds of difficult things that your great great grandparents went through, your great great grandparents went through. Um, like I've had discussions with my parents about like my great grandparents, um, my great grandmother, she went through the Spanish Civil War and then she had to go and she fled to Cuba. And then she, it was the Cuban revolution. And then there were also like some hurricanes that they went through. And I think on the other side, there was like someone who went through, people who went through the great depression. And no, just like knowing that, at least for me, it's kind of reassuring because then when I look back at my own life and I, I have, I've kind of moved around a lot. I moved from the US to England and now I'm back in the US. So sometimes it can feel like, where's my community? Where's home for me? And it can be kind of dissettling when you feel like you don't have that place that you've like just always belonged to. Mm -hmm. But then like you're saying, when you can look back at your history and you can look back and confidently say, I come from a line of people who have been resilient and they've gone through difficult things and come out the other end. I'm not alone in this. It's very powerful. And nowadays people don't have that sense of connection as much. It's very difficult to, like you said, like document everything, but it's definitely very important. And I think I, the other thing that um, came to mind was, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but the remake of The Color Purple. Mm -hmm. I saw yeah. it the other day. <laughs> and it kind of, I kind of thought of it now because of, without spoiling it, <laughs> um, just how they kind of 
go through the movie and there's a subplot of, oh, you know, we come from Queens in Africa and it's like gives them a sense of, of pride and courage as they go through their own struggles and they go through a lot of struggles. <laughs> Yes, they do. Um, I love the movie. And yeah, it, it definitely. And then even to that, you know, I think there's also beauty in being able to identify. Yes, my family has gone through so much through the generations and have survived. And also the mundane of it all, you know, like my grandmother was had a garden and i just think that that is not only so beautiful but also so necessary right when we're thinking about building sustainable worlds and in that world everyone should have a garden yeah. <laughs> everyone should have access to foods that's going to nourish themselves and she didn't just nourish herself and her family she's known as a woman that if you 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 couldn't have gone hungry living within five miles of grandma maddie because you knew that if you were hungry all you had to do is make your way to her farm mm -hmm. all you had to do is make your way to her garden because she saw it as her purpose to feed her community and she did mm -hmm. so with the resources that she had, which was her garden. Now, mm -hmm. she was also the woman where there's the story she tells where the police came looking for her son. And she stood out on a porch with a shotgun and said, you are going to have to get through me if you want to find my son. Wow. And she was so fierce. This is a, a short, stocky Black woman in the South, in, in rural North Carolina, talking to the sheriffs, white sheriffs with a shotgun. And she was so fierce in her conviction and such a staunch member of the community and so known in her community that they respected her and said, you know what, Miss Maddie, we don't want no problems and left her property, you know? So it's like, it's for me, it's being able to tap even into the smallest understandings of who we are and what we're capable of. To me, that tells me that I am someone that is, has historically had a relationship with the land in a way that I know how to tend to the land. I know the value of the land. I know the value of feeding myself. I know the value and the importance of feeding my community. I am also from a line of Black women who are not to be played with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like who who are so sure that they are guided by something beyond themselves that in a time where she could have easily been lynched and nobody would have thought twice about it, she stood her ground to protect hers and her family against anti-Black racism against the police state, against trafficking, right? Like these are the things that she faced. So absolutely you and I can say, if our ancestors can do th this under these conditions, I surely can speak out mm -hmm. in the face of injustice. Yeah, I think there's a Joseph Campbell quote that just came to mind when you said that, something like, Every time you you go through some, go through something, you don't have to worry because there have been like so many heroes in history before you that have gone through it as well. And I think that part of it is definitely there's some some power in storytelling, especially storytelling where you feel like you're almost part of the story through the fact that the people in the story are your ancestors. And when you can feel that sense of connection to a story, especially a story that has really transpired and it is almost like inside of you already, it's like you said, it's knowing that you were part, you're part of like a legacy that you can feel empowered to continue. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to raise up Kara Page, who is one of the founding thought partners around the Healing Justice Framework. Um, she also does a lot of work on epigenetics, 
Mm -hmm. It's the study of really essentially talking about what you're talking about, right? This idea that our genetics actually carry these stories. Our DNA Mm -hmm. actually carry these stories. Um, That trauma has a way of changing your DNA and then you can actually pass that down. But she also does research to argue, but so does resilience, like resilience in the face of that trauma, the the generational curse breakers, the healers within lines can actually change the DNA and the genetics so that you're also passing down Mm -hmm. genetics of healing, genetics of empowerment, genetics of resilience. And the more you tell those stories, I think that's also a part of doing that type of um, that genetic work. And part of that is the kinds of science fiction stories that Octavia Butler writes, but then it's also the other side is knowing your history. And through knowing these stories, you can propel yourself into the future. Exactly. Uh, but I would like to ask you about the intergenerational approach that you take um, through your project, particularly about how Earthseed uh, facilitates people connecting with their ancestors spiritually? Yeah, so um, we are a cohort-based program and it's a nine-month program and we meet once a month and each session is facilitated. I bring in different facilitators to facilitate each session. And one of the sessions that we actually do is facilitated by Alexis Pauling Gums, who is also an amazing Afrofuturist, Black feminist writer, scholar, artist. She, for the last couple of years, have come to walk us through a guided meditation, and it's called the Seven Generations Meditation. Mm-hmm. And we actually sit and she guides us through and invites us to meditate as if we are visiting ancestors and we go through for seven generations back. It's a really emotional and beautiful experience because one, statistically speaking, Black folks, I would say in America, in North America, have troubles actually even being able to identify their ancestors beyond five generations. And five generations is actually really lucky and generous. So and five generations really, is like 150 years, roughly, right? Roughly, yes. That would be into the 1800s, right around when slavery ended, basically. Exactly, exactly. So the existence of enslavement and the ways that even genealogy and archival research was created um, create you know, was created really for white folks to be able to trace their lines to the royal family, not created with marginalized communities in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, So these type of like structural barriers, as well as just the trauma, you know, a lot of folks may not want to visit ancestors who have been enslaved or want to visit that era because that brings up a lot of trauma. These actual structural barriers can create a real block for you to even think like, how am I gonna, I can't even think beyond the third generation. I don't even know the names past the third generation. How am I gonna get to the seventh generation? But what this session actually does, it it asks you to just relax into your own intuition and allow whatever comes up to come up. This is really healing for me because one, the cohort itself is very intergenerational. So the youngest person in one cohort was 25. The oldest person was 72. So this space itself is already inviting kind of an intergenerational dialogue and experience. So being able to be in community, to sit in community and do this type of like generational meditation also invites different perspectives and ways of interpreting the messages that you receive via meditation. So mm-hmm. some person might be able to say, oh, my great, great grandmother came to me and the invitation, you know, the meditation is on the premise of 
to ask your ancestor, what gifts do they have for you? And some person might say, you know, my great great grandmother came to me and she handed me a cupcake. And you have to interpret, like, what does that mean? You know, um, for me, because I'm one of the people who struggles to know the names past my great great grandmother, I started to see figures in shadows. And one image was me actually standing on a riverbank. And on the side of me are just shadows. I don't see faces. I just see these kind of shadowy figures. And my interpretation of that gift was the knowing that they are with me, that I don't have to know their names. I don't have to know their full stories just yet to just know that they are still with me and to be standing on a riverbank like that can have a whole bunch of, you know, meanings, right? The river can be a place of healing. The river can also think about, it was a place of escaping. You know, I think about part of the Underground Railroad and how um, runaway folks who were enslaved or folks who were, you know, running away from enslavement would cross a river in order to hide the scent of dogs, right? So even thinking about what are they trying to tell me, like what does, what is that gift? What does this gift mean? So yeah, it really, the process is really doing actual mm-hmm. meditative work, doing creative writing practices. It's acknowledging and accepting that there are going to be gaps, that there are going to be things that we don't understand and allowing that to be a part of the creative process. Is there a way that people can access that at at home or in a particular place online, like prompts or particular questions that people can like meditate on when they're trying to do this kind of work? Yeah, I would definitely, um, you know, tell folks to check out Alexis Pauline Gum's website because she actually sells her guided meditations online and they are definitely worth the investment. Even her voice is just so meditative. Like she just has the voice of an oracle. So you can't help not to get into a meditative state as she's guiding you through it. Mm-hmm. On our website, I do have an example of like a writing prompt that you can use, like a journaling prompt um, that you can use. Um, and I also have examples of books that you can read that really helped me to navigate the type of approach I wanted to take as I'm doing this work. I guess just to play devil's advocate, would there be any reasons why intergenerational collaboration or intergenerational meditation would hinder someone's spiritual journey or make them feel like adverse, adversely about their own history? Yeah, I mean, I think the journey itself is not an easy one, Mm. right? Because you are inadvertently going to come up against trauma. I mean, and not even thinking about generations behind you, trauma between you and your parents, trauma between your parents and their parents. Um, One of the exercises we do, um, we bring in Reverend Letitia James, who does this session on genogram mapping. And genogram mapping is essentially, you create your family tree, but instead of just, you know, mapping the relationship, so, you know, this is the great grandparent, and these are her children, and then these are their children, that's a family tree, but genogram mapping looks at dynamics. So who was married versus who got divorced? Who had a history of alcoholism? And where did that history, how did that history get passed down? Where was there sexual violence or child molestation in the family? How often does that show up in the family line? So Outside of just, you know, this is an intergenerational tension because how your great-great-grandparents may have dealt with that or didn't dealt with those dynamics 
not only impacted how your parents, your grandparents and your parents were raised, it impacted how you were raised. So I would say that anybody who is interested in getting into this work has to prepare themselves to come up against very hard, very difficult dynamics. And if you are if you are committed to being an oral historian, I don't believe that you can be what's the word objective. I don't believe that you can separate yourself, you know, as just the interviewer. So you're going to have to figure out a way to take care of your emotional self. Mm -hmm. If you are sitting and listening to your grandmother talk about essentially abusing your father, but your grandmother doesn't see that as abuse, mm -hmm. right? Living and living in the world that you live in, doing the work that you're doing, done doing the healing that you're doing, you can recognize, oh, that's abuse. And I can also make sense as to why my father showed up in this particular way, why he was emotionally distant in this particular way. It's because, mm -hmm. oh, he was neglected, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the family doesn't talk about that. You mm -hmm. know, that's that's something that you have to be prepared to navigate. And that's why I think it's so important to do this work in community. That's why I was very um, clear about wanting to have a cohort model because of exactly that. It can be very isolating, very scary. If you don't have a support group, a soft place to land and a uh, a care practice, it can be discouraging. Yeah, there's definitely something very difficult about the the dynamics in a family being such that you like don't want to antagonize your relatives or your ancestors, but then also the flip side is you shouldn't romanticize the past either. And I mean, even when you read a story that is completely fictional, you can always tell when the character isn't real, when they're just too good to be true, or they're too evil and terrible to be like a real person. And of course, when you then are dealing with real people that you don't know personally, and you, you really, especially, you know, when they've passed away or they're a few generations back and you only have a certain amount of information about them, it's like you said, it's difficult to make sense of the dynamics and to acknowledge the past and to honor the past without misrepresenting it. Um, and then also healing from it as well. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's why I say take your time. Do not rush the process. There was um, an Audre Lorde quote that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and it, it says, Black feminism is not white feminism in blackface. Black women have particular and legitimate issues which affect our lives as Black women. The reason why I wanted to ask you about this was because you take an interdisciplinary, like intersectional approach. And I was wondering what role collaboration and community storytelling play in allowing particularly intersectional people in the Black community to heal? Um, yeah, I think for Black folks, so one, the way that I approach intersectionality and ensuring that this space is an affirming space for Black folks is one, the, making sure, being very intentional about the makeup of the space. Like people from varying backgrounds, experiences, everyone in, a, in the group has a different diasporic experience. Some folks' family are from the Caribbean. Some folks' family, you know, go generations back to the South. Um, a lot of people, which is interesting, in the last two cohorts, a lot of folks, no matter where you ended up or where you started, there's some type of thread through the the South in North America. But uh, I think it, it requires being intentional about who you invite into the room and seeing Blackness as something that is vast and deep. You know, there's no one single story. 
when it comes to the Black experience. You know, Mm -hmm. Black family history can touch every movement from movements around economic justice to movements around housing injustice to environmentalist movements to the reproductive rights movements to movements around migration and immigration like the black family experience has can be can touch and has touched all of those movements and we learn that once we go into our family histories once we see the things that they had to navigate you can see like oh like you you know, being at the forefront, watching your family make these decisions, leaving, you know, this country and then coming to this country, that speaks to the experience of immigration and immigration politics, right? Mm -hmm. Watching your grandmother serve as a birth doula in her neighborhood, not being a nurse, not being a doctor, but everybody came to her because they didn't trust the hospitals because the birth mortality rate for black women was so high in this area, but Mm -hmm. they came to your grandmother uh, because she has number of babies under her belt. Like that is a story of the reproductive justice movement, you know, (laughs) like this, these are ways that you have, your family has resisted, but also been very imaginative about how to respond to oppression and and, um, anti-Black surveillance in this country. I think uh, to me, it's about having that key understanding that there is no one Black story and that in fact, our stories are interconnected with so many of these movements. To me, it's the key to like really curating an intersectional space And I'm still learning, right? I'm still learning on how to do that. I want this space to feel, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how to get more young people. And it's so weird to say young people because I'm only like in my mid thirties. But I acknowledge that there are younger people, right? And how to get more young people um, interested and involved. And that's going to require me going to where they are, getting their insight, hearing what they have to say. Um, I'm really committed to intergenerational conversation and dialogue because I feel like that's the sweet spot. That's where the magic is. And storytelling, you know, I do think has been a mechanism of Black resistance for as long as we know, right? Folklore. Um, Mm -hmm. I think about, you know, African deities like the Orishas, like these stories are told via mouth via oral history, right? Folklore is how people keep hold of traditions. You know about grandma and them because you were in the kitchen while the aunties were just chatting. These are not stories that are are written down. These are stories that were passed down. I know about my grandma Maddie from my mother, my aunt, and my grandma. Her story isn't written anywhere mm-hmm. yet, right? I think that's the goal is to start to document these stories so that they're not lost. But storytelling has has been, and I hope will continue to be a powerful tool of Black resistance and a powerful way of honoring and making sure that our stories are, making sure that our experiences are not lost and also to resist the erasure and um, whitewashing of our stories, right? To resist somebody else, not only telling your story for you, but making profit off of your story, telling that story incorrectly, taking your story out of context. That's why I think it's such an important political act, particularly for Black experience. When you are trying to tell your story, how do you deal with this other narrative that's being fed to you by the media? Mm. You know, I don't think, I don't think I'm conscious of the other, like I know it exists and I don't want to say I'm exempt from it, Mm -hmm. but I think I'm so focused on, and I think that's the power of when we turn our gaze inward So if I'm focused on finding resistance, representation, healing, and liberation within my family, 
I'm not focused on the stories that are being told about Black women outside of me, outside mm -hmm. of that. You know, I'm not looking for, I'm not looking to see myself represented mm -hmm. in mainstream media because my focus is seeing myself represented in my own family right now. Yeah. You know, I'm looking for like, where are the other queer people in my family? I know I'm not the only queer person mm -hmm. in generations, <laughs> you know, like there's, that's just like statistically not possible. Where are mm -hmm. they? What did mm -hmm. they do? How did they live? How did they love? You know, it's like, I'm, my gaze right now is very, very inward especially like in creating the goal is that we will take this and create more art. Um, Cause I do think that there's more art happening. I mean, I'm looking at the color purple. We just talked about the color purple, right? Yeah. And origins um, is something else that comes to mind. You know, I do think that there are, there's more art being put out into the world to add to the canon of this idea that the black woman is all things, right? Because I'm a fan of um, Ava DuBernay's work, but I'm also a fan of Cardi B. You know, mm -hmm. like I think that black women deserve to have multifaceted representations of who we are, how we live, how we love, how we move without the critique. <laughs> of mainstream society and to have the space to exist in these multifaceted ways. It makes me think of uh, that psychological trick where people go, um, don't think of a pink elephant and how if you tell someone not to think of something or not to focus on something, they're going to focus on it. Whereas if you give them something else to focus on, then they can divert their focus. And it's kind of like, I guess, what you're saying, where if you tell someone, just don't pay attention <laughs> to the media and the news, it's not possible. Whereas if you say, instead of like taking on the entire world and all of the news and all of the media outlets and all of the books and all the cultural narratives, instead focus on your family and your community and focus on understanding how you fit into that narrative, it's a lot easier than trying to block off the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. It's about, it's a part of the resilience, your tool package, your resilience mm -hmm. tool package. You yeah. know, I am saying that it doesn't exist. I'm saying that my response has been, let me find something else to put my, to focus my gaze on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think it like the idea mm -hmm. of, uh, starting with your community and with your family is it's not just applicable to social justice and to spiritual healing, but it's applicable to any kind of change you want to make. Where, like, if you start with the problem that's really big, then mm -hmm. you're gonna get discouraged and probably not make as much progress as if you just start on what you can see in front of you and what you can see the obvious next steps to be. So mm -hmm. I think that's definitely very applicable to anyone who like wants to make a difference in the world. I'm wondering now the kind of like work that you do when you talk about the, like the community that you've built, is that when you're talking about spiritual healing, is there a point at which it can get, too like the community gets too big for it to have an impact or does it, does it need to be a more intimate community or is there a way to is there a role that like the government needs to play or larger forces I guess need to play or is it something that it just needs to be like a smaller more intimate community of people um, I think I'm in a place of trying to figure that out, right? The question of mm -hmm. scale. Mm -hmm. I do think that the cohorts have to remain, you know, a manageable size because it is a very intimate space. 
Mm-hmm. And the desire is to encourage relationship building to and to feel safe enough to like tell your truth in this space, um, to have enough time for everyone to share. So I think that the cohort space will remain an intimate space, but I'm trying to figure out ways to remain in community so that you don't just leave the cohort and then you're just out kind of left to continue this work on your own. For me, you know, I appreciate the emergent strategy presented by Adrienne Marie uh, Marie Brown. Um, she has this, this quote that talks about move at the speed of trust or build at the speed of trust. Um, and that the goal should be to go deep and not wide. Mm. So for my organizing model, I'm trying to move at a pace that encourages the community that I'm building along the way to continue to trust me, continue to trust each other, and continue to trust the process. And I think that requires continued relationship building, continued checking in, continued resource support, um, because you don't just leave the cohort having done you know, having gotten all the information that you could ever need on your entire family, healed all the generational trauma, and then created something dynamic to leave behind, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's kind of the long-term goal. You leave the cohort feeling hopefully more grounded in your work, more focused about what it is you want to, clear about what it is you want to focus on and more inspired to create something, continuing to create something. I think that's the ultimate goal. Like, can we, what can we create from what we find with the idea that one day we will be ancestors? So how can we prepare ourselves to be the best ancestors that we can be so -hmm. that generations that come after us can look back and say, wow, Sophia really left us an archive of, material where I can go back and really, when I'm thinking about sustainability, when I'm thinking about spirit, you know, she really talked to folks that gave me insight on how that can inform what that means for my life. Mm-hmm. You know, like, wow, Jashana really left back an archive of collages and visual art that I see as portals into mm-hmm. her world or she really saw you know this world she she created the world that I'm living in now like the visuals that she has in her work I see all around me right like I think that that's the ultimate goal and that level of movement building requires intimacy it requires trust um yeah so I think you know scaling, is is something that I'm trying to figure out. I don't want to get to a point where our goal is all about numbers. You know, how many people can we get apart? Because it's also about if I'm a member in the cohort, I'm just not the person in the cohort. My whole family's a part of the cohort mm-hmm. because I'm going back to my mom and I'm asking her questions, right? I'm going to my aunt and I'm asking my aunt questions. So it's also acknowledging that we step into the space not just as isolated beings, but as people who are accountable to other communities, even if they're not physically a part of the space. Right. I like what you said about preparing to be a good ancestor. Is there Are there particular ways people can prepare for that? Is it through creation or creativity or are there other ways? Um, yes, I mean, creativity, creation is a way for that. I think the best way to prepare to be a good ancestor is to do your own healing work now. Mm. To, to show up, to, to figure out like what are the barriers to you living your full and authentic life? Mm-hmm. What can you control? What relationships do you need to heal? What conversations do you need to have? And then you know, creating something from that, but you don't necessarily have to create something, you know? I think I often talk about the 
the relationship with my mother. You know, we have gone through um, journeys upon journeys and where we are now, I can honestly say that the ways that I have healed myself and then went back to my mother and invited her into that healing journey with me so that we can heal our relationship together has prepared her to becoming a better ancestor because she's able to recognize within herself the ways that she was not able to mother in ways that I may have needed based off of the ways that she was mothered. Mm-hmm. She's able to be honest about what think, you know, what about my identities and the ways that I moved in life made her uncomfortable, made her afraid, and we're able to work through that, right? And I think because I was able to do that work and then courageous enough, I don't want to say courageous, but willing, willing to go back and say, mom, you know, I want us to work through this. I want us to be, have a better relationship. I feel like that that healed something in our line. And that made me is part of what's going to make me a better ancestor. Um, so yeah, I think you don't even have to, if you, if you don't write anything down, although I think you should, (laughs) um, or if you don't create anything, although I think you should, Mm -hmm. I think that if you just decide to do the internal work to really ask yourself, what parts of me need healing and to decide that you are going to show up in that answer that's you becoming already doing the work to become a better ancestor mm-hmm. because yeah. that healing gets passed down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's like that, that um that Maya Angelou quote, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will remember how you made them feel. It only takes one generation to change things, change the dynamic almost completely. And it makes a big difference when you're you can give the people in your family the gift of that healing. You've given them something that is not only theirs, but is then something that can continue to be passed down. Exactly, exactly. And living your full and authentic life, you know? I think about the fact that I don't know the names of other ancestors who may have been queer, although I know they had to have existed. The fact that I don't know their names is sad. But what I do know is that generations after me and my family now know my name and they Mm -hmm. know that I am and I love being who I am. They know that I live a very queer life. Like to me, that's part of the healing, right? Like living Mm -hmm. authentically um, will give generations that come after me, including my little sister, permission to do the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's becoming the best ancestor that you can be. Yeah, I think one of my favorite things is when I talk to someone in my family about something that they they love and they could just talk about forever and ever. And you can see like on their face, you can see them light up yeah. and you can see them talking faster. You don't even have to say anything, but it always um, makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, the joy, right? The joy mm-hmm. of love, the joy of passion, the joy of, I mean, even thinking about, you know, I don't know that my mom has ever been able to work for the sake, you know, put effort into something and energy into something for the sake of the fact that it brought her joy because she was a mother at a very young age, right? Mm -hmm. So working for her has always been about survival. But now I get to like wake up and do something that I enjoy. Do I still have to like do jobs because I live in a capitalist world? Yes. But I know what it feels like to my soul to do soul's work. And that is generational healing. Are there any, I think you have, you have suggested a few books and resources along the way, but are there any additional pieces of literature or any other people whose work you think uh, might be good that people can look out for? Yes, I'm looking up at my library right now. So I talked about Alexis Pauline Gums, all of her work. 
all of her meditations. Um, I talked about Adrienne Marie Brown. Um, she also has a podcast with her sister, um, How to Survive the End of the World, which I think is a phenomenal podcast. All of Octavia Butler's work, every last piece of it. It's very, you know, her work can be kind of hard to get through, um, but I do think that it's worth it. Octavia's Brood is actually an anthology of different artists, different writers that actually has a lot of, you know, really inspiring work. Pet is the name of the book. I cannot remember the name of the author right now. How is that? Um, uh, Pet, P-E-T. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a phenomenal book that really, what I love about that book is it has like um, mysticism in it, but it gives you real insight on what it takes to build a new world and how to make sure that you are not perpetuating the same old tropes and same oppressions in the new world that you're creating. Yeah, I, I could I could go on and on, so I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that you would like to discuss? I don't think so. I think that was very rich. Yeah. All right. So next up is the quick fire questions. And for the quick fire questions, uh, we have a special guest co-host, <laughs> um, Henrietta, who has been helping me with the podcast. And I'm very grateful for her. And yeah, she will be asking the quick fire questions today. Well, that was that was very insightful. Thank you very much for sharing your Earthseed project with us. Um, so I shall just ask some quick uh, fire questions. Firstly, imagine you are staring into the face of uncertainty, afraid to take the first step. What is the first thing that you do? Pray to God and ask for help and ask for courage. Wonderful. Thank you. What is one misconception about your field or area of study that you would like to debunk? That it's easy because it's absolutely not. It's very difficult, particularly for Black folks. Um, there are a lot of financial, structural, and emotional barriers to doing this work, but it is not impossible. Thank you. And what's the worst advice you've been given? To stay at a job that I hated simply for the health insurance. <laughs> Um, and I say that as someone who does not have, you know, chronic illness or disease, but it was the worst advice I received because that job was actually causing a lot of illness, mental and physical health illness. So it didn't make sense to me. Uh, what is the most underrated spiritual teaching that you've come across? The most underrated spiritual teaching? You know what? Prayer calls like groups. And I don't know if it's underrated. Maybe it's underrated for our generation. Um, Cause I think um, our, at least my elders were very into prayer calls, but I started a prayer call with a group of friends that is going on three years strong now, where at one point we were meeting every morning um, to write down our prayers, share what we wanted to call in, to cover people. You know, we had a wellness and sickness list but there is something about gathering, you know, the saying when two or more are gathered, um, God is present. It is something about gathering in the face of injustice um, with the power of prayer as a collective that is very empowering and also very grounding. I'll certainly um, love to experience a prayer call. I mean, this, this, fe this feeling of of a collective, I think is so much stronger than this individualist sort of ego egotism that some people can take with achieving their salvation in faith. So I will end with the question from our previous guest. And that is, if you suddenly found yourself in charge of the world, what would be the first thing that you would do? I would make sure that everybody had access to shelter. I would take all of these high rise buildings that are just vacant right now, all of these mansions that are vacant. Um, if you have an empty room in this mansion, you will have somebody living in that room. <laughs> um, I live in Chicago right now where it is 11 degrees below zero. 
and people are without shelter. And that just really breaks my heart. Thank you very much. Yes, thank you, Henrietta. So if people would like to reach out to you or look into your work some more, what would be a good way to reach out? Yeah, you can email me at earthseedblackfamilyproject at gmail.com. I'm also on Instagram, earthseed underscore black underscore family underscore <laughs> archive <laughs> at, um, on Instagram. We're also on Facebook. You can find us on Facebook. Um, and then our website, um, which is uh, a Google site right now. So you can just Google Earthseed Black Family Archives Project and we'll pop up. Mm-hmm. I'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Um, well, thank, thank you. you so much. It has been a lot of fun talking to you and very insightful. Thank you. This has been so great. I can't wait to, to hear the podcast and I'm around if anything else comes up. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you really enjoyed that discussion. If you are interested in reaching out to uh, Jashana and checking out more of her work, please do take a look at the show notes and check out the resources that she suggested. There you will also find a link to the Green Also Green website and Instagram page. If you would like to stay updated on the Sustainable Spirit podcast and Green Also Green, you can make sure to follow on Instagram and subscribe to the email newsletter, which is released once a month and will not clutter your inbox. If you want to receive otherwise support this podcast, please leave a review and share it with a friend, a stranger, an acquaintance, or an enemy. It doesn't matter. It's a baby podcast taking its first steps. So every single person out there listening, downloading, sharing, and spreading the word are making a difference and setting the trend. So thank you. I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for you. That said, I can't wait to see you next episode. Until then, keep asking big questions with a big heart. Jashana Wally.